being fearless and fearing less in our lives is a daily practice. I mean, you know, the obstacles were, were there. I think it's how we think about those obstacles. And do we think about them as obstacles or do we think about them as opportunities? Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited to share this episode's guest with you. Molly Fletcher is a trailblazer in every sense of the word, a rare talent of business wisdom, relationship brilliance, and unwavering optimism. As a CEO, she shares her unconventional and unique techniques that made her one of the first female sports agents in the high-stakes, big-ego world of professional sports, and now is a successful entrepreneur. Formerly, as president of client representation for sports and entertainment agency CSE, Molly spent two decades as one of the world's only female sports agents. She was hailed as the female Jerry Maguire by CNN as she recruited and represented hundreds of sports' biggest names, including Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz, PGA Tour golfer Matt Kuchar, broadcaster Aaron Andrews, and basketball championship coaches Tom Izzo and Doc Rivers. As she successfully negotiated over $500 million in contracts and built lasting relationships, she also observed and adopted the traits of those at the top of their game. Molly has been featured in ESPN, Fast Company, Forbes, and Sports Illustrated. A sought-after motivational speaker, she delivers game-changing messages to top companies, trade associations, and teams worldwide. Molly is the author of four books, Fearless at Work, A Winner's Guide to Negotiating, The Business of Being the Best, and The Five Best Tools to Find Your Dream Career. She's also the founder of an e-learning platform that provides personal and professional development content for individuals and companies. Molly has been recognized by Michigan State University with the Outstanding Alumni Award and has received numerous other awards as well. She currently serves as a national trustee member for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America and on the National Advisory Board for the Positive Coaching Alliance. Molly earned a bachelor's degree in communications from Michigan State University while captaining the women's tennis team. Molly's energy and passion for life shines through everything she does. She finds her greatest joy at home in Atlanta with her husband, Fred, and their three daughters. Molly, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. I'm so delighted that you're here. I want to start because the thing that stuck out with me is the female Jerry Maguire. So I think that's a great place to talk about your background, how you got into sports agency, and how you got that nickname. 
<laughs> well, you know, CNN, I think at one point sort of, you know, called me that. And, you know, the truth is it's just an easy, quick way for people to know what it was that I did for almost 20 years. But, you know, I was, I was a student athlete at Michigan State and uh, played tennis. And then I wanted to stay in the business of sports and was fortunate enough to get in with a small agency in Atlanta when I moved uh, down here to Atlanta to find a job. And and sort of through some navigation and great relationships, and to your point of your show, people helping um, and being kind and giving me 15 minutes to give me some advice, I navigated my way into his office. And and what I found that I loved was the sort of relationship piece, you know, building relationships with the athletes and the coaches that I wanted to connect with and that we as an agency wanted to represent. And that became really my purpose and my passion. I love taking these raw relationships with athletes who often didn't trust a whole lot of people and building a connection, not only with the athlete themselves, but their wife or their, their husband, depending on what, you know, what, who the athlete was. And, and then beginning to really manage their career through a window of time, which is short and special and unique. It, you know, it was a, it was an, an amazing journey, but to your question, sort of about the Jerry Maguire thing, that was sort of how it, how it landed and, and it has stuck for, for whatever reason and for good or for bad, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> but what you said really resonates, I'm sure, with many people listening to this. It's the raw relationships. Is that something that you knew you had a gift for while you were in college at Michigan State as a tennis team captain, or is that something you learned to develop later on? You know, I think like all of us, right, we, we sort of get more clear on it over time. I'm not even sure I was totally cognizant of it. I just knew that I liked connecting. And, you know, I think when we wake up and we're ourselves, hopefully each and every day when we're who we are and we're authentic, right, then, then that connection piece works better. And that's all I did. It wasn't anything special per se. It was just being authentic and being in the lives and the heads and the hearts of the athletes I wanted to connect with. And really realizing, you know, the challenges that they had, the opportunities that they had, the fears that they had, and getting in front of them and connecting as it relates to the things that they were worried about and excited about, and then finding a way to serve them. You know, I felt like if I can get in their heads and their hearts and I can find ways to serve and support them, then they're going to want me to be in their corner, right? They're going to want me to negotiate their contracts with their teams or their, you know, their networks or whatever, whether, whether it was a baseball player or a golfer. Or, and, you know, and the irony of it is, is now I spend a lot of time speaking and it in many ways is the same dynamic, which from the outside looking in may not appear that way. But the truth is it's, you know, when you walk in and sit in front of a baseball player, and particularly as a female, right, they're sort of like, all right, lady, what do you, you know, what do you got for me? What's your story and how are you going to help me? And speaking's the same way, right? I mean, you walk up on a stage and there's a thousand people and they're looking at you going, all right, lady, I'm busy. What do you got, right? And how are you going to make me better in an hour or whatever? And so I find such a real connection between um, both places that I've had the, the pleasure to, to live and, and truly to, to serve. One of the things that I think is important in what you said is you know, you're talking about these meaningful connections. You're talking about really finding out about the other, whoever the person's challenges are, the client's challenge, you know, the limited window they have. When one is creating something, and this could be the case from the standpoint of entrepreneurship, this could be the case of somebody wanting to create a large goal, the, the biggest 
challenge is always at the beginning because once you get that momentum going, it really starts rolling. So take us back to your first client, if you recall who that was and how you were able to convince this person, as you said, a female in a male-driven industry to take you on. Well, you know, so I started with an agency and we had a few clients. We had a couple NBA coaches and one or two baseball players. And so I, I saw the gap, right? I recognized, I said, you know, gosh, there's an, the opportunity here is with regards to managing an athlete's career is their, their primary contract. That's where, you know, you are in turn kind of called and, and, and their agent. When you, when you do their primary contract, you negotiate their appearances, endorsements, and all those things. But so I saw a gap at, at the agency and I felt like, man, there's an opportunity for us to go get more athletes. And why don't we start with baseball? Because we were in Atlanta you know, the Braves are here, you know, there's several colleges, there's some minor league teams in and around, you know, and in, in within a two, three hour radius of Atlanta. So I thought, let's start there. So I went into the CEO of the company and I said, let's expand this baseball division. I think there's an opportunity for us. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, gosh, I mean, there's, we have two guys, right? There's 750 guys in the big leagues. You know, there's however many thousands of guys in the minor leagues. And so I, he said, well, well, we'll put a plan together. So I put a business plan together for kind of how, how we could do that and, and what that would look like and, and the projections, obviously. And, you know, the athletes in the area, the kind of low-hanging fruit and how I would go about it and what my 60-day plan would be, what my 90-day goals would be, et cetera. So I put this plan together and he said, go for it. And so I started, like probably like many of your listeners, right? I mean, if you've got somebody on the, you know, that's listening who's a financial advisor or who's a you know, a business owner, an entrepreneur, you know, you're not gonna, I certainly didn't start by going out to get, you know, Jeter or A-Rod, right? I had to go get, you know, some young guys that were coming out. And so I went down to Georgia Tech, which was 15 minutes from our office and literally got to know the, the head coach there, got to know the scouts that were scouting some of the top talent. I had read that there was a couple guys that were projected to be first and third round picks on the team. And so I went down there and was just there every single day and leaning on the fence with the scouts and built relationships with the scouts and the coaches and the players and their parents. And, and that year I signed a first round guy and a third round guy, third baseman and a shortstop. And those guys, neither of them made it to the big leagues, but those guys came in through the minor league system. And, and every year I would do that. I would sign you know, three to four guys out of college. And then those guys would get into the minor league systems, you know, first and third round guys. I mean, half, if not less than those guys actually make it to the big leagues, but they were, you know, I took good care of them. I visited them. I took them to dinner. I took care of all their needs on and off the field from a equipment perspective, you know? And so it evolved. Those guys introduced me to other minor league guys. And, and then I found myself after a couple of years going, wow, you know, I've got, I think I had maybe five or six guys that had percolated into the big leagues. And I realized I had a gap. I mean, I needed a guy who had played the game at a fairly high level who could have a conversation with these guys that was a little different than mine, right? I mean, I didn't play baseball in the big leagues. I, I didn't even play in college. So obviously there was a gap for me. I didn't know what it was like to be on a bus for seven hours. Um, I didn't really know the difference between a you know, a slider and a curve and a fastball, or I didn't know why a double switch was happening in the bottom of the sixth inning. I had, you know, educated myself a lot, of course, and, and my athletes were kind to me and sort of helped me along the way. But at the end of the day, they, 
I had a gap. And I think all of us, as even the listeners would say, you know, we, we find ourselves as business owners or leaders where we have gaps and that's okay. It's just close those gaps so you can serve your customers and your clients better. And so I hired a young guy who I had represented and had been released from the Rockies. And he came in and, and helped me grow our baseball division. And he was a terrific addition. And he and I worked together as a team to, to, to continue to grow the division. So, and then every couple of years, I would do the same thing. I went in and put a business plan together for golf and two years later and grew that and then hired a golf guy to help me manage the golf space. And then, you know, and it, it just evolved to where I think I signed about 300 guys in about 15 years. But my favorite part of all was sitting, you know, in front of them when they, when the relationship was new and in its infancy and then, you know, finding yourself with their wives and their parents at an all-star game seven years later when they were having tremendous success or, or standing there at the edge of the putting green or at the edge of the green on 18 after they've won a championship. When you've taken that relationship for sort of full circle, that was what was the most rewarding part of that journey. That's fantastic. And a couple of things really stood out to me that you said in that is one, you identified a gap in terms of your relatability and you went out and brought in talent that could fill that gap for you. And then two, essentially taking your model that works and just hitting different verticals, you know, going from baseball to golf to, you know, other sports. And that's, I think, something that most entrepreneurs would certainly relate to. Molly, any particular stories that are really memorable? I mean, you, you spoke to, you know, the victories that it was really great, you know, to see guys come up through the minors and then spend an all-star game with their spouses. But any particular stories that really stand out for you as just fantastic during your time as a sports agent? Well, I mean, I think the most special stories are about the guys that I had the opportunity to work with. And, and you know, what I loved about the work as an agent was, was really two things. One was the opportunity to be around guys and gals who you watch wake up and, and deal with adversity and then recover, you know, to watch the way they prepare for big moments, to watch the way they execute inside of big moments, to watch the, what the mindset. And so, you know, that was one of my absolutely favorite things is when you're around these guys and gals, they lift you up too. As much as I was serving them and representing them, I also obviously had an opportunity to learn so much. I mean, I would sit with a guy like a John Smoltz and hear all the stuff that was going on in his life off the field. And then he'd get in his car and drive down to the yard and throw eight scoreless innings, you know? And, and I thought, man, if the world knew what this guy had on his plate, and then he just did that. And so that inspired me in so many ways. Number one, it inspired me to want to support them even more. And then two, it inspired me because I could learn from them. And it lifted me up and I think made me better both for them and for others. So I love being around peak performers and, and then the relationship piece. It's a, it's a business that's so relationship intensive. I, I heard once that there are more agents than athletes to represent. So it's an insane business model, right? I mean, it's remarkably competitive. And so, you know, having the opportunity to build relationships with people who are difficult to build relationships with because they're skeptical because the world is constantly trying to get in their space. So, you know, the stories that stand out to me are, you know, when, when John Smoltz went from a starter to a closer after a decade in the big leagues, you know, in, in one 
you know, role. And then all of a sudden the organization asks them to, to shift roles, which happens to people in corporate America, right? I mean, you're, you're inside of one role and then you get tapped to go fill another role. And what I saw Smoltz do in that moment was instead of being skeptical or scared or, you know, or say no or be defensive, he, he said, you know what, I'm going to accept this challenge because my team needs me to do it. You know, Bobby Cox needs me to do it. So I'm going to do it. And then he led the National League in saves the following season as a closer. So one, one thing I you know, learned so much from these guys is they leaned into discomfort. They embraced it. And they recognized that on the other side of discomfort was growth. And that, to me, was you know, amazing. They, they stayed curious all the time. They were constantly trying to learn to grow. The, you know, to me, the best coaches in the world welcome feedback. Um, you know, Tom Izzo was a guy that I had the pleasure to, to represent. And, you know, Tom, to me, is a really special leader and he builds great teams and he builds great cultures. And, you know, he trusts his guys and his guys trust them. He, he holds them accountable and they love him for it. So, you know, when you ask sort of the stories that stand out, I could go on and on, right? The stories are, are sort of endless. But when you, you know, one one of the things that comes up for me right now is, you know, Doc Rivers, who's an unbelievable coach in the NBA, like Doc ends every meeting with a question to his athlete, like the kid will come in, a guy will come in and they'll be talking to to Doc about an issue or an opportunity or challenge, whatever. At the end of the meeting, Doc, who's a, a wonderfully connected human being, I mean, he's very dialed in, says to his guys, hey, you know, what, what do you need from me? You know, what do you need from me, right? So the athletes just talked about all the things he's got to go do or wants to do or challenges or whatever. But Doc always ends the meeting with, what do you need from me? And I think that's something great leaders can grab and take. You know, if you end every meeting with your employees and say, what do you need from me? It's another way of saying, look, I hear you and I'm beside you. I'm going to support you. And what do you need for me to go do it? And if the, if, you know, and then, you know, they say, oh man, coach, I got it. Okay, cool. So then go do it, right? You know, and we were fortunate. I mean, we worked with really good guys. I mean, you, you know, when you're talking about guys like John Smoltz and Doc Rivers and Tom Izzo and we, Ernie Johnson Jr., I mean, these are great human beings. Forget the fact that they were great baseball players or great coaches and did what they did so well. They were great people. And, that, and that's, to me, what, what also made it just remarkably you know, enjoyable. Hey, guys. Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Those are great stories, and I've heard that actually about Doc Rivers. I, I don't recall where, but you know, he he very much has a player focus. He's known as a player's coach, is is I think the the analogy. I wanted to shift gears a little bit, Molly, and talk about the biggest obstacles that you had to deal with personally trying to break through in the sports agency world, and as a woman in particular. 
I mean, you know, the obstacles were, were there. I think it's how we think about those obstacles. And do we think about them as obstacles or do we think about them as opportunities? And for me, it was shifting and saying, what a gift it is that I'm a little bit different. What a gift it is that these athletes will remember me when I'm on the range because there's not a lot of people that look like me on the range. You know, what a gift it is that the players will, you know, remember me when I'm behind the dugout and have my back. I mean, there was plenty of times when I was behind a dugout and, and players would come over and talk to me, my guys, and the managers would yell at them and tell them to stop hitting on that chick behind the dugout. And my guys would say, dude, that's not uh, it's some chick behind the dugout. That's my agent. So they always had my back and that was huge. And I think that was a tribute to the relationship that we had. You know, it was a gift because I was able to connect with these athletes if they were guys, which most of my athletes were, not all, but plenty, it, you know, was their wives. I mean, I built great relationships with their wives and I think was able to serve them in a way that was different maybe than other agents, you know, and, and that was really special because, you know, when a, when a baseball player gets traded, he gets on an airplane and goes to the next city and throws on his uniform and goes out there and does his job. Meanwhile, their wife potentially is back at a house with furniture, two cars, four kids, schools, doctors, and they've got to figure it out. And so we supported and served an entire family. And I think that was another tremendous asset. I, I wish the world would, and yet more young women would, would uh, you know, become agents because I think that we have a way in which we can serve these guys. It's a little bit different. And we can put great people around us that close any gaps that we might have. And, and um, you know, that's what I tried to do. So to me, being a female was about framing it in a way in my mind that helped me see the gifts and the benefits in it and shifting in the moments that were challenging, which there were, you know, when, when, when I was behind a dugout or inside the ropes at a PGA Tour event, when people would wonder who I was and what I was doing there, that shift those as an opportunity to recognize the gifts in that, that I was different and, and I um, and, and, and build such great relationships with my guys that they supported me and had my back. And so, so to me, what the world might view as what a, what a jammed up deal. I mean, that was hard for you. I bet was actually an amazing and wonderful gift. I love the way that you reframe that. That's really awesome. You did the sports agency for how long? Like a, a little over 15 years. What made you decide to transition away from it? So, you know, I loved, obviously, um, every minute of it and still have great relationships with my guys. What, what happened, which was interesting, was I wrote my first book because so many young people wanted to meet with me to be an agent. They all want, thought, you know, that's what I want to do, and I'm going to get with this lady, and she's going to help me. And so they would, they would reach out, and I would watch that process, and I'd watch candidly the way I felt like the kids weren't um, executing that process well. And, and to me, the process was very similar to the way I was recruiting athletes. You know, you want to get in front of people that you want to help you or hire you. You want to connect with them, and then you want to try to find ways to stay connected to them. And, and that, you know, the way that I recruited guys was the way that you want to recruit somebody you want to work for. So I felt like, man, this is broken. These kids don't understand how to do this. And it makes me sad because, you know, you work a lot in your life. Whatever it is that you choose to do, you work a lot. And I thought, man, I do not want people to wake up every day, all their lives and do things that they don't like, because that feels like a real drag. And meanwhile, I'm in my little job that I loved. And so I thought, man, I got to find a way to help these folks. And so I wrote a book. I was pregnant with twins, actually. And I would go to this little coffee shop around the corner from our house and I would write when they would, you know, when I was pregnant. And then I also had a one-year-old. We had three kids and that's a whole nother story, by the way. 
Dr. Richard, but I had three kids in 12 <laughs> months, my husband and I. So, so we had one. And so when I was pregnant with my twins and my, my oldest, my first child was napping, I would go to this bookstore or to this coffee shop and I would write. And it took me about a year and a half. And I write this book and I thought, you know, worst case scenario, I'll staple this thing together and give it away because I can't meet with all these kids that want advice, but I hate that they aren't finding their way and it really breaks my heart. But I thought, you know, before I just staple this thing together and give it away, let me see if I can get a publisher. So I began to recruit all these publishers because getting a book published is, is hard and a weird process. And it's just a whole different space that I was unfamiliar with. So long and short of it, I recruited this publishing company at the end of the day. And they took my book on and they edited it and, you know, bound it and distributed it for me, which was huge. So that book kind of got a little momentum. And then universities started saying, hey, will you come and talk at our sports management program and talk to our kids and whatever? And I thought, yeah, absolutely right. Because instead of meeting with one kid at a time, I could, you know, speak to a room of 50 and help all 50. And so I thought, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. So I'd run around Atlanta and go talk to these programs in and around here. And so then I wrote another book because I thought, boy, this book's helping people. This is kind of fun. And so I wrote another book called The Business of Being the Best. And that book, I actually went out and I thought, let me try to get an agent, a literary agent to help me with this book. Let me see if they'll grab the book and, and, and try, to, try to take it to bigger and better publishers. So I got this agent, or I kind of recruited him, John Will, a great guy in New York. And he sells that book to a publisher. They grab it and they distribute it. Well, that book kind of gets going. And now companies like Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and Nationwide say, hey, will you come up, talk about you know, how you did what you did and peak performance, et cetera. So then fast forward, I'll tighten this story up. I found myself with companies saying, hey, will you come and speak? And simultaneously, I'm serving our athletes. And I had a team of nine agents who were working with the athletes that we, that we had, a team of marketing people, et cetera. We'd grown the division now to a point where, you know, it was, it was pretty substantial. And so... I really had to make a decision. And what I found was my mission in life, my purpose was to inspire and and lead and connect people. And I felt like I could do it in a bigger way and in a more impactful way on a bigger kind of platform as a, as a speaker and business owner. And so we, so I made the leap. I had about, I don't know, 15 speaking engagements on the books and it was crazy. I mean, you know what I mean? I left this huge job with, lots of athletes and and a team of agents. And, but I wanted to do more from an impact standpoint. And so, you know, now I speak to a hundred thousand people a year all over the world. And I do feel like I made the right move. I love what I do now, right? I've written two more books since those books. I write a book about every other year. You know, we have a podcast, uh, we have e-learning, I have trainers that run around and train on negotiation. So it was a no-brainer move, but it sure as heck was scary inside of the moment because I was walking away from a salary and all that kind of stuff into nine or whatever, 10, 15 speaking engagements to the tune of 10% of my annual compensation. So the world might have said it was crazy, but looking back, I wish I would have done it a little bit sooner. <laughs> what's, what's really wild about that is, you know, one, it, it evolved kind of organically for you. I mean, you, you totally. probably... Yeah, you didn't set out to become the speaker. You and travel the world and do all these things, and it just it evolved. And I I think what you also said that was really cool is you essentially had your dream job. You created it. You were doing everything that you loved, but your mission shifted. And when one's mission shifts, I, it's really 
amazing for those that have the courage to go out and take that leap, which you did. Well, and I'm a huge fan of, you know, we, we have corporate mission statements, we have all these things, but what about having a mission statement for your family? You know, what about having a purpose statement as an individual, right? And so that's what happened. I got clear on that. And that's when I realized, boy, I can do this in a bigger way and with greater impact on my own. I would encourage everybody that's listening to, to take the time to do that. It's a, it's a powerful process. And talk to us a little bit about your podcast. Well, you're sweet to ask, you know, so we launched it about two or three months ago and it's been great fun. As you know, you get to meet and connect with neat, neat people. And it's called Game Changers with Molly Fletcher. It's, it's found where all other podcasts are found. You know, we've had guys like Tom Izzo. We've had great leaders, great CEOs, um, just remarkable people. I'm interviewing Gino Ariamo tomorrow, the head coach at UConn women's basketball. It, it's just an, it's an honor and a pleasure to for these people to take their time and, and connect with, with us. But most importantly, it, you know, it creates an extension, which is why I write books and have e-learning and we have a training program because in an hour as a speaker, you can make an impact on somebody's life for sure. I think you can, if you do it well, but you know, in order for people to make change and you're a, you know, you're a psychologist, you obviously know this in order to make change in someone's life, they've got to stay in that work every day, every week, every month. I mean, they've got to stay engaged in that process. And so these other vehicles, whether it's podcasts or books or training programs, do that. So it helps me sleep better at night because I feel like it's, it's, it's an extension to the change and the impact that, that, that I am trying to make. And your newest book, I want to jump back to the book, and we will link to your podcast, by the way, in the Daily Helping app and our show notes so people can find it. Your latest book, Fearless at Work. Tell us the inspiration for that and what the readers would gain from that book in particular. Well, I mean, the inspiration for it was that, you know, I think when I began to look at what I felt like was the biggest gap in performance and really dialed it down to the thing that I felt like was stopping people, I felt like it was fear. And I think it is the blocker for sort of a lot of things. And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about fear of a tiger or a snake or the things that we need, <laughs> right, to have fear of per se. I'm talking about, you know, the fear of, you know, changing jobs, the fear of making a change in our lives that, that we believe would serve us better. We're just sort of scared to walk across that desert to get there. So I began to sort of recognize that that was the sort of the linchpin in it. And I also saw that my athletes, they had all those fears too. They just channeled them differently. And I saw that the way that they overcame those was daily. It wasn't, you know, it didn't happen in five minutes or a week or a month. It happened every day, all day, consistently through leaning into the discomfort of fear, facing it, not suffocating it, but facing it and pushing through it. And what I saw was on the other side of that was just awesome stuff. And I thought, gosh, we need more people to have the courage and the tools to lean into it. And it, and it happens over time. And so you know, to the, to the question of what will they get out of it, you know, it's recognizing that little moments create really big outcomes. So when we, what I saw with athletes was, it was, you know, years and years and years of them leaning into those little moments. But what the world saw was the game winning strike out, you know, the game running home run, the grand slam bomb, the, the free throw with two seconds left to win the championship, the, the coach calling the play that gets it done. 
That's what the world saw because that's what's on the world stage and in the media. But what I saw was all the little things that happened that got him to that moment. And what I realized was it, that moment isn't an accident. That moment is a byproduct of lots of little moments that got him there. So the book is about what I began to do is I pulled back and I said, what are all those little moments? And what did my athletes trade in those moments that allowed them to make that shift? You know, so it's trade comfort for courage. And I identified, you know, 60 plus sort of trades, which was kind of a fun metaphor for me as an agent, obviously, with trades. And so the, what the book will do is walk, walk people through the big fears and then the trades that have to happen inside of those to make the shift that they want to make to allow them to overcome it, to lean into it. And it, and it really, I believe, successfully sells people on the fact that being fearless and fearing less in our lives is a daily practice that everybody has. All my guys were scared to death of big moments. Don't think athletes aren't scared on a Sunday when they've never won a PGA Tour event and they're standing over a putt to win a million bucks and it's a putt they've hit a hundred times. They prepared for that moment. That's why that putt goes in. It's not an accident, right? So it was a heck of a fun book to write. And, um, you know, it's just exploded out into the end of the um, end of the world and is doing really well. So I hope your listeners grab it and enjoy it. It was fun to write. Most importantly, fun to help people. Well, I really love the language that you talk about, about the trades. And obviously, 60 is a lot and we don't have time to talk about 60. Could you share three or four that were are your amongst your favorites? Gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, I talk about trading, you know, I trade comfort for courage is a really big one, right? Because I think that when we're sitting inside of our lives, change is hard. And so sometimes it feels more comfortable to stay, to stay in the place that we are instead of maybe shift to another spot. And, and it takes courage to make that shift, right? You know, I talk about authenticity and transparency. We talk about curiosity. And there's a couple trades in there that 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 allow that encourage people to trade um, um, an emotion, a mindset for curiosity. I think you know that was a something that I saw so many athletes do and coaches do. We talk about trades that that tie back to resiliency because when you're fearless, you're going to fall, and and all the best do, and that's okay. They just recover fast, and so instead of staying in that spot after you fall. It's having the courage to be resilient and recover fast. You know, Butch Harmon told me that once that, that, that the best do recover quickly. And I think that's an, absolutely the case. The best baseball players are going to walk a, a guy, right? The best golfers are going to bogey holes. The best coaches are going to lose games. But what they do is they do everything they can to not walk two guys in a row, right? And so they send themselves the right messages so that they can recover quickly. So recovery to me is a really big part of, of being fearless, you know, and I, I, you know, as a, I have, we have three daughters and, um, who are, you know, for sure my, my entire reason and, and they are such a gift, but I talk to my girls a lot about, you know, fail, fail a lot, fail often, just recover fast. Because I think we live in a world where the failure tolerance is very low, you know, with this whole iPhone, Facebook, you know, me, me, me world that we live in. People present themselves in a way that oftentimes 
is perfect and that's not really real. And so it's okay to fail. It's just, we, we got to recover fast. You often hear the, the term in business, that the tenure overnight success. And I think that's a lot of what you speak to that behind every, you know, ninth inning strikeout is, you know, the guy giving up the home runs before that and learning his lessons. And it really is, you know, what, what you're saying, you know, tenacity and being authentic. And, and I think that's a topic for another show about, you know, the Facebook, uh, what Facebook has done to us societally. But certainly that really resonates with me and I'm sure will with a lot of the audience. Well, Molly, we're just about at time here today. And as you know, I wrap up with all my guests with a question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The one thing, the single most important thing for somebody to walk away with after listening to you today? Well, I would say, you know, stay curious. You know, people ask me all the time, like who, you know, tell me about your view on mentorship or sponsorship. And I think that the more curious we can stay, the more opportunities there are for people to influence us in a positive way every day, all day, all around us. So, you know, my biggest nugget for folks would be, you know, listen to podcasts, read lots of books. That's the common denominator I see with peak performers is they are lifelong learners and they are consistently curious. Perfect. Molly, where can people find you? MollyFletcher.com and, you know, all the links to Twitter and Facebook, all that kind of stuff is, is all there. So MollyFletcher.com is great. That's awesome. And what we'll do is we will link to all of Molly's offerings, including her books and podcasts and everything else, both in the show notes and the Daily Helping app so that everybody listening to this show can get their hands on it and learn from it. Well, thank you all for listening today. If you liked what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This is what helps other people find the podcast so they can get their daily helping as well. Now go out there and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know them, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. <laughs>